This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. For better or worse, the coronavirus threatens to transform American education. Millions of students are not attending school. Teachers are struggling to reach students online. Parents are being asked to homeschool. Children are wondering when they will see their friends again. And school superintendents are wondering how they're going to pay the bills. To discuss the economics of education in the life and times of the coronavirus, I have with me today Michael Podgurski, director of the Sinkfield Center for Applied Economic Research at the St. Louis University School of Business. Mike, these are disturbing times. One hardly knows where to begin. Perhaps we should begin with a quote from T.S. Eliot, April is the cruelest month. March may be bad, but April could be miserably cruel. So let me first ask you whether you think this is just a momentary blip that will forever ruin the spring of 2020, but will soon be forgotten as the swine flu has now been forgotten uh, within a couple of years. Well, we shall see. I think there'll always be an asterisk next, next to uh, April of uh, 2020. Um, I, We'll, we'll hope for the best. Ultimately, we'll get past this and you know, we, we've, we've got to move on. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll muddle through. So I have Churchill here over my shoulder. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll muddle through. Well, what do you see as the most important economic impact on K-12 schools? Well, the... Um, this this downturn is is clearly going to have a, a massive effect on uh, state and local revenues. So so that's going to be the, the the biggest hit we're going to see in the you know medium term. Um, this is going to swamp the uh, quickly swamp the um, rainy day funds of states and and the school districts. Um, I think your the the federal bailout is going to help ameliorate that, like the um, uh, the ARRA in two thousand nine, where the federal government tried to reduce the number of teacher layoffs and and staff layoffs in in public schools after the um, uh, two thousand eight nine uh, recession. So so that's going to be. Uh, you know that's going to be the the immediate term problem. But you know that, that bailout is not so directed at education as it was eight years ago. Eight years ago, the schools got a hundred billion dollars, and uh, this time I think they get thirty billion, and they may get a piece of the state funding as well. But they're going to have to fight against the health sector and the university sector and uh, the police and so forth for the for to get as much as they got last time. Well, on the other hand, they're already talking about bailout two. <laughs> so, uh, sir, I agree with you. Bailout one is is not as um, earmarked for uh, K twelve, but but there may be more down the road. But I think these are this is going to have uh, longer term effects in in several ways. One, I, I was on a conference um, on, a, on a virtual panel last week, 
And uh, one of the panelists, I, I mentioned teacher shortages and the other panelists said, well, those ended last week. Uh, I think that we won't be talking about teacher shortages for, for a while now. Um, People are gonna like that job. Yeah, I don't, turnover is going to drop a lot. And, and I think, you know, what you're seeing here is um, one of the non-pecuniary benefits of teaching Although there is, there are lower salaries. There's, there's just a lot of job security, and uh, and you're seeing that right now. The teachers, the schools may be out, uh, and the teachers may be doing, you know, a little dabbling a bit with distance learning. <laughs> Basically, they're going to get their paychecks. Well, that's true benefits. of professors too. Mike. That's true of professors too. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, uh, there, there are non-pecuniary benefits. And, you know, if you look at the uh, letters in the Wall Street Journal today, a couple of them point that out, that it's, it's the government employees that are, that are uh, uh, well protected in this, at least initially in this downturn. Uh, the other thing that I think we're going to see, we're, we're gonna see uh, important changes concerns distance learning. I think you're really going to see a big jump there and, and much greater use of it um, in, in K-12 and certainly in higher ed. Um, maybe not at Harvard and Stanford, but, uh, but I think you're going to see much greater uh, uh, use of it in, in um, higher ed. And I think what we're going to see why, is... Why do you say that? You, because maybe people are so frustrated having to, to work with this and they got to adapt so quickly and this production value is going to be so limited uh, that people will say, this is really an inferior way of learning. Let's go back to brick and mortar. We're so happy to go back to brick and mortar. Well, it's possible. But the, other, the, the, the way I look at it is there's just a big fixed cost in setting these things up. And once you do it, it's it's actually not uh, not that hard to do, um, and it's cheaper from the institution's point of view. It's more profitable than running classrooms and so on. Uh, but a lot of the resistance it was just you know the initial startup cost. We'll see. Maybe you're right. I I think what's going to happen. I think a lot of the initial resistance was from the faculty and from the teaching force. I, I've noticed, we've been discussing online at Harvard for some time and at a government department meeting, I would say, you know, I've got two courses up online, I'm flipping the classroom and I'm doing these videos and this is how we do it. And not a single member of my, not one of my colleagues thought this was of any interest to them whatsoever. Every single one of them are online today. My view of higher ed, and this, this was going to be the second part I come to, is I think, you know, what, what students are buying at Harvard and Stanford is uh, the peer effects. Also great faculty like you, but peer effects. And you're not going to get that with distance learning. Uh, so I think that, you know, at the elite privates, the, you know, the, 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 the top of the pyramid, if you will, um, you, you, you know, there will be some of this, but again, you're paying for these peer effects. But I think what you're gonna see is a lot of, uh, there's gonna be a big shakeout among the private uh, four-year institutions. Uh, what was it, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' wife uh, took down Burlington College. I think you're gonna see 
a lot more Burlington colleges in, in the next few years. Uh, they were already struggling. And so I think a lot of that, um, uh, those folks will get picked up in, in, in larger institutions. And a final, then a final thing that you knew I was going to come to <laughs> is a pension issue. Um, and this is, no one's talking about this yet, or at least publicly. Uh, they may be whispering in, in, uh, uh, at the water cooler at the big uh, pension funds. But um, I, I think you're, let, let, let me give you a couple statistics in this regard. So the, we, we just ended the longest bull market uh, in, in, in the stocks uh, in history. Uh, the last it looked pretty good about uh, three weeks ago. I yeah, it looked it, great. Yeah, it was up like about what hundred percent over two hundred. Oh yeah, tremendous over. returns from from uh, I guess '09 forward. So if you go back to the last uh, bull market in stocks, which ended in two thousand one uh, with the meltdown, the dot com meltdown, the uh, the typical state and local, the large state uh, uh, pension plans, public pension plans, were 102% uh, funded. So they ended this long boom in the stock market with a dollar and two cents of assets for every dollar of liabilities they had. So that's what's supposed to happen, right? You ride the bull market up and then you get, there's plenty of money in the piggy bank to pay your pension liabilities. We just finished the longest bull market, which was, as you pointed out, and I didn't look up how much the stock market more than doubled over this period. And yet the typical public pension plan, the most recent numbers we have, is 73% uh, funded. Uh, and that the teacher plans will be look like that. So here they, here they rode this long, long bull market, and they're still, they're ending it uh, with only about 75 cents for every dollar of liabilities. And just to give you some examples, that, that's the average, but of course we have the- So where are they gonna get the other 25%? Well, the other 25% is now the other 50%, because that's before the market melted down. Now we're not gonna see these numbers for, for a couple of years because they smooth them out, but that's what their assets to liabilities look like in 2018. Again, the most recent numbers. So what's gonna happen is those, the assets are, are, have plunged. The stock, the standard and poor's dropped by about 30% uh, uh, in, in this downturn. And um, uh, so, so their, their assets, are gonna have plunged relative to their liabilities. And let me just mention, that's the average, but if you, some of the, the worst funded plans out there are the teacher plans. CalSTRS, the California teacher plan, is 60, this is 2018 numbers. We won't have 2019 for a few more months. We're are 64% funded, 64 cents for every dollar of liabilities. The Chicago teacher plan has 48 cents for every dollar of liability. The, the rest of state, um, you have two plans for teachers in Illinois, Chicago and everyone else, 
everyone else has 41 cents for every dollar of liability. So, but, but, but the, the president says that this is just a temporary blip and the market is gonna come roaring back as the economy comes roaring back because of this stimulus package. So this is just uh, your you know, concern about a temporary problem that's gonna cure itself within, uh, you know, within six months. Well, there's, there's a couple of things going on that lead to my pessimism about these pension plans. First of all, you have the fact that they have this big overhang of liabilities. But the second thing is they're all handing out benefits on the assumption that they're gonna make, um, and it varies from plan to plan, but basically about seven and a half percent. Okay, so, so, so every day, right, and even if the teachers aren't at work, they're accruing future benefits and the plan is putting away only enough money um, to, to pay those benefits based on an assumption of uh, 7.5% return. Now, we are approaching a situation of almost negative interest rates <laughs> on treasuries. It, it, it's just in, incredibly um, optimistic, shall we say, to assume that you're going to be making 7.5%. Uh, the, 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 the return on government securities, the risk-free rate has plunged. So the only way you're gonna get those kinds of returns is to take on more and more and more risk. So it, business as usual is just not gonna work for these pension plans. Something's gonna have to give. So what, well, I know what can happen. Uh, you can have a federal bailout the federal government's bailing out everything else, why not pension plans? They can just say, if Illinois goes bankrupt on, or its pension plan does, or if California's pension plan does, they can apply to the US Treasury for funding and they can borrow at a certain rate and, uh, and the government will lend it to them. They'll be the, uh, the entity of last resort. Well, I suppose that's Banker of last resort is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Right. Um, and uh, that didn't happen with the last uh, bailout, ARRA, uh, although I guess money is a little bit fungible. But the, the, the magnitude of this is, is really large. I mean, you're talking about, um, by their own measures, one one and a half trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities. Um, and if you kind of price it correctly, it's probably on the order of two and a half trillion in unfunded liabilities. I, you know, I suppose you could, they could, they could try to do that. Um, but of course, a big problem that, that, that came up, if, you know, in the last round, all this, when, when, with under ARRA, and, and in this round, basically the, the easy thing for um, the federal government to do is to push money down to state and local governments in kind of a uniform way. Um, you know, everyone's gonna spend down their rainy day funds and they're gonna be faced with laying off teachers and policemen and firefighters. 
But these pension, the, these unfunded liabilities vary dramatically from state to state. So, you know, some states are in, in better shape, none of them are in great shape, but some of them, but you've got some real basket cases here. So what you'll be in effect doing is cross subsidizing, you know, the states that, you know, kind of were more responsible will be cross subsidizing the states that weren't, weren't putting away money. And um, that's not real popular. Um, you know, that idea I, has never caught on <laughs> of let's all bail out Illinois and let's all bail out California. I can tell you that even, even I think among Democrats in Missouri, that would not be popular. Well, speaking of Democrats, I, I wanted to, uh, to bring up this, uh, the political question here, and that is, uh, you know, if, if there's two scenarios that you can write here. One is, is that uh, this thing, April is the cruelest month, but, you know, following comes May with, with, uh, with the flowers and, and summer is here and the virus uh, can't stand the heat and all of a sudden the economy roars back and uh, the president gets all the credit and uh, he, he, he marches on to victory. But the other scenario is, is that this thing hangs on and however popular a president is in the short run as crises develop, the longer that crisis unfolds, as we know from the hostage crisis that Jimmy Carter went through uh, in the waning days of his presidency, the longer it goes on, the more challenging it becomes for the president. And there's no better example of that than George W. Bush and, and the economic downturn that he suffered at the end of his uh, presidency. So it could be disaster for the Republicans in November. Uh, and the, what would be the consequences of that? What do you see for education as the consequences of a, uh, of a democratic takeover of the entire national government? Well, yeah, let me, let me come back to the, the um, preconditions you noted. Um, I think what we're gonna see in the next month, in, in the cruel month of April and, and May, is we're gonna see absolutely staggeringly bad numbers, economic numbers. We saw our first one today. Well, I suppose the stock market we've been seeing continuously, but we saw a new unemployment, new unemployment insurance claims, 3.3 million. And there's a yes, great- Yes, viewers, we're recording this on Thursday. This is coming out on Monday. So, so no, no, the unemployment us, rate- Everything could change out, by Monday, but right now is, is Thursday. Yeah, the right now, as of right now, the first horrible economic number aside from the stock market, are these new unemployment insurance claims. And it's 3.3 million. And I mean, this is not, you know, uh, as Joe Biden liked to say, literally, this is literally off the charts. I mean, if you plot, if you look at the plot, this, this peak of 3.3 million is, is, is more than four times the highest we've ever observed. And I think, and we're gonna see the unemployment rate next Friday, assuming the Bureau of Labor Statistics staff come to work. Um, and you know, we, we can see unemployment rates that are gonna hit 20 or 25%, and we're gonna see in, in sharp declines in output. So all kinds of economic bad news is gonna be coming down the pike. So as you say, it's hard to imagine that 
that can be turned around real quickly. Um, I, so th there's this, all these metaphors out there. Is it going to be a V, <laughs> you know, a sharp drop and a sharp bounce back, or more of a U <laughs> or an L? <laughs> so, um, I, you know, it's we we are we've fallen in, or, or we are falling into a big hole. And you're right; it it may not um, uh, bounce back sufficiently um, for for the president and the Republicans. So, what happens if if all if the if the um, President, uh, I would assume President Biden and a and a Democratic Senate and House. Well, the 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 Democratic Party has become way 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 less sympathetic to charter schools and school choice. So I think the charter um, the charter sector won't have a friend in D.C. anymore. Um, now, the governors. The good news is education policy is largely set in the states. Um, but I think some, some other issues will be, you'll, you'll see the, um, well, you know, again, the National Labor Relations Board will shift back towards unions, but that doesn't govern collective bargaining in the, uh, in the states. So, you know, we, we, know, we know that, that, that K-12 policy is largely a state, a matter for the states. So, um, so at the margin, there there would be changes. There will be less sympathy towards school choice. You know, we'll get more of these. What do what you call it? Dear friend letters. You know, dear colleague. Dear colleague. You know, we transgender bathrooms and and those sorts of things. But but you know, the heavy lifting. The money is coming from the states primarily. Um, of course, if the feds bail out the K-12, there undoubtedly will be strings attached to, um, to any major bailout money. We saw that with ARRA. So, um, so the federal government you know, could end up being more intrusive in um, you know, K-12 policy along a number of dimensions, testing, equity issues, um, unionization. See, that's what court, you know what they would want is to uh, create a more permissive environment for teacher collective bargaining, particularly in light of the Janus decision. So you would get a US Department of Education that will be much, much, much more sympathetic to uh, uh, public sector and teacher collective bargaining. But again, that's a policy that's set in the states. So, um, so you know, I, it, it, in a sense, federalism insulates the states quite a bit from these things. But and of course, the other thing you um, should always remember: if you win the presidency two years later, you're going to lose a lot at the local and state level. That's a basic pattern. Uh, you have two years to do uh, what you want to do, and then. Uh, the, the the pendulum will swing back again. So um, that could all come into play as well. But you know, I wanted to ask you this. A friend of mine said, uh, how did he put it? He said, uh, he, he quoted Churchill, I guess, uh, never have so many sacrificed so much for so few. Uh, by which I guess he meant uh, everybody, the, the incidents of, um, 
the death rate is pretty low at this point. Yeah. Uh, everybody is projecting huge increases uh, unless we do a lot. Uh, but those are based on very speculative models and very limited data. So, um, so do you think that the government has overreacted? Well, I. <laughs> the. Because you're uh, old, so you you I, may I, I, you I may agree. be sympathetic to this idea. I uh, I I am old, and and. Um, so the numbers you know we initially were seeing numbers of you know uh, in the hundreds of thousands and millions uh now we saw this new stanford st study by two Stan stanford uh, uh biostatisticians suggesting something on the order of um you know uh, in the in the tens of thousands 40 to 50,000 I see just before I logged in here on the Drudge Report, it was put up as a scare number, but a, a couple of other researchers at, at some institute, I forgot where, but it's academically based, had 80,000 as their median estimate, which was, you know, big, scary, 80,000 deaths. But when you start talking about 80,000, you're talking about twice of the bad flu season. So yeah, you can't shut down the whole economy here. Um, so, so I think that, you know, we're in phase one here, but phase two is governments have got to start thinking about ways to get people back to work, you know, and it can, it'll vary across sectors, you know, um, but, but coming up with planning to get, let people get back to work because, yeah, we're, we're going to see tens of thousands of, of small businesses wiped out. Um, and, um, you know, in, in the, the unemployment rates going through the roof, Jason Riley had a nice piece in the wall street journal yesterday that this is disproportionately minorities in the service sector that are getting laid off. You know, I think we should do the best to protect our vulnerable people with, you know, weakened immune system, the elderly, those in nursing homes really need to be, we need to concentrate resources on protecting them and isolating them. But, but, you know, once we get through this initial period of, you know, April, say, um, we really got to look at ways to get people back to work. I mean, to put it differently, we, we, we can't shut the whole economy down. I mean, it, it's kind of re like reverse. I'm reminded of Hayek talking about government planning. When the government starts saying, well, we're going to let the, we're going to close down in this industry, but not this industry. You know, they don't understand the complex interactions. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal today about, you know, we expect these truckers to deliver stuff for us, right? To get us our food. Well, if truckers are going to deliver our food, there has to be gas stations open. There has to be some place where they can, you know, rest and buy something to eat. And you know, there's all of these um uh interconnections that 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 uh that that are in the economy that are very complex so um so if, okay so it's a long way of saying we, we we can we can put the economy on pause for a little while but we better start thinking about how we're going to unpause it 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for that thoughtful analysis of the dilemma that we're now facing. If we move too fast in one direction, the cost uh, could be dramatic. But if we, uh, if we don't move in another direction, uh, things could be equally devastating. So uh, on that uh, very sober note, uh, I will uh, thank you for your insights. Okay, thank you. And uh, wash your hands. See ya. <laughs> I've been speaking with Michael Podgurski, Director of the Sinkfield Center for Applied Economic Research at the St. Louis University School of Business. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.